what I want to do this morning is talk about how important it is to make sure that we're reading the whole counsel of God's Word when we shepherd our hearts. And uh, we've talked about reading plans. We have several different example reading plans in your build notebooks for you. There's a chronological plan. There's several other plans that take you through different threads at the same time. Um, what we're going to do this morning is talk about all of the benefits or some of the benefits of those as it relates to understanding more and more about the full counsel of Scripture regarding our hearts. So what we'll do is we will start in Exodus this morning. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 8. What we want to look at is the ways in which we learn about the human heart and the condition of the heart when we read our Bibles left to right. We read our Bible through some kind of plan, whether it's a plan that gets you through Scripture in a year or a plan that gets you through Scripture in two years or a plan that just moves you through Scripture consistently. Um, whatever it is, what we're going to see this morning is that God's Word tells us a lot about the human heart when we read our Bibles left to right or in some kind of systematic fashion. So we're in Exodus chapter 8. What is happening here is Moses has gone to Pharaoh and he's got a message from the Lord Yahweh to Pharaoh and the message is, let my people go, let them come and worship me. And there's a series of ten plagues that God brings upon Egypt and brings upon Pharaoh himself in order to show Pharaoh that he is God and he is worthy of being praised and he is worthy of being worshipped. What we're going to look at here is um, the second of those plagues. The first one, uh, the water is turned to blood and the Egyptian magicians are able to duplicate that only by God's enabling. But the second one is the plague of frogs in the land. And the Lord brings these frogs. Moses tells Pharaoh ahead of time in verse 4, the frogs will come upon you and your people and all your servants. And so that came about in verses 6 and following, and the magicians did the same thing. And then Pharaoh decided that he'd had enough, and he asks for Moses to pray to God or whatever to relent. And so the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses and the fields. And they piled them in heaps on the land, and it became foul. Verse 15 is what we want to look at this morning. God's word tells us that Pharaoh saw that there was relief, and he hardened his heart, and he did not listen. So when you're reading your Bible, you can learn a lot about the human heart just by reading this story. You learn that a hard heart comes about when there's relief. That uh, an individual is prone to harden their heart when they're relieved from their situation. That can counsel us a lot. Really provide some good counsel to us. And this verse also gives us an, an outward manifestation of that hard heart, and that is that Pharaoh wasn't listening. So when we're reading our Bibles left to right, we can learn that one way in which we need to be very, very careful is when our situations become easy and they become, become pleasant uh, because our heart is subject to that. And one manifestation of that is that we don't listen to others, listen to good counsel. So we read along and we see the same thing happen after the next plague, which is the flies. At the end of verse 32, again, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he did not let the people go. He hardened his heart when he finds relief from the plague. And so those kinds of things are, are on. But what we see here is that Pharaoh is actually hardening his own heart. And if you jump ahead another chapter in your reading plan, maybe it's that day, maybe it's the next day, you drop down to chapter 9 and you look at verse 12. And this is the plague of the boils. And there's boils on the skin of the people. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on the Egyptians. So that these are becoming closer to Pharaoh. They're coming closer and closer. Verse 12, 
Then Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as Yahweh had spoken to Moses. So we see here, what we see here is the judicial hardening of what is already there. So here we learn when Scripture talks about the Lord hardening a man's heart, he's applying a hardening to what's already there. He's increasing the hardening of what is already there. And that helps us understand our perspective and our, our view on the human heart, that when the Lord is hardening something, he's hardening what was already hard from the start. And that really helps us with our theology as we, we read our Bibles, and we read our New Testaments and our Old Testaments. So we learn a lot when we, we read our Bibles. If you keep reading your Bible and you move ahead through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, you get to the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy. So let's flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We all know this. Um, this is the second giving of the law. This is 40 years later. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've gone through the wilderness. They're perched on the other side of the Jordan, the east side of the Jordan, ready to enter into the promised land. And Moses gives them the second giving of the law. And they really need this. Israel really needs this. And it starts in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. So what we see here is that when we love God, we love God with the totality of who we are. Um, when the Old Testament talks about the heart, it's describing the man in his totality and his completeness. And it is from within all of us that we are to love God. And so we see that that was God's command to Israel. And if you read the following verses, what you learn is how you actually demonstrate that love is by obedience to what God commands you. And so when we're reading our Bibles left to right, we can see um, we show our affections to God by obeying Him. And so it's really, really good to spend time reading our Bibles left to right. And um, it really helps us as we see that. So when we're reading our Bibles, we, we can continue to read through the Old Testament. And we get to a book that I think I've mentioned before. We get to the Ezra, the character of Ezra. They're, they're in the, the post-exilic period. They've returned. And we talked last time about how, or a couple of months back, about how Ezra did, did three things. And that is in chapter 7, verse 10 of the book of Ezra, we see that Ezra did three things. He studied the word of God, and then he practiced it, and then he taught it. But if you look at the book of Ezra, you see something very, very interesting about that. You see that this is something that's very, very informative as you read this. You see that Ezra was studying the law of Yahweh to practice it and to teach it and to teach the statutes in Israel. But look at what it says at the beginning of the verse. Ezra had set his heart to do these things. It was the orientation of who he was as a man that led him to study the law of God and then to practice the law of God and then to teach it to others. And so what this tells us is that we can actually orient our heart. And the godly man, the saint, is actually capable of orienting his heart in a certain direction. So we learn more and more and more about that. So what I wanted to do this morning is just continue to help you understand that that reading according through all of Scripture is very, very helpful to us as we consider the human heart because it shows us throughout all of the ages of the Old Testament and the New Testament what is true about the human heart. We have here several things for us. If you look at um, in the section of your notebook, there's a resources section. Um, something I want to show you is two different documents. The first one, as you can see, it talks about 
the number of occurrences of the heart in the New American Standard Version of the Bible. There's 856 occurrences of the word heart in Scripture. 856. And you can see how they're spread throughout. They start in Genesis, where there's eight references to the word heart. And in Revelation, there are three references to the word heart. And all spread throughout. As you see it, it's pretty evenly spread out. You'll notice when God gives the law, and primarily in Deuteronomy, there's 45 references to the heart. Um, you'll see that the story of Israel and, and their post-exile in Second Chronicles, there's actually 31 references to the heart because Israel had been in Babylon for 70 years and God brings them back. So he has to make sure that they understand that it's all about the heart. Um, and you see it throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs. 126 references to the heart in 150 Psalms. Then you see there in the Minor Prophets, you see Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Nahum, Zechariah, five references to the heart. Malachi references the heart. Um, so God is very, very concerned about making Israel understand issues of the heart throughout the 1,500 years or so in which the Old Testament was recorded. So for 1,500 years, God continues to talk faithfully through those years about the heart. And then you see it all through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're all speaking about the heart, all the way through the letters. Most of the letters mention the heart and Revelation itself, too. So if you really want to understand what God has to say about the human heart, we're going to need to read all of our scriptures, all of our Bible. And so it's really, really good to make sure that you're on a reading plan. Whatever kind of reading plan it is, it allows you to cover all of scripture. God gave it to us so that we can read all of it. Um, the other document I wanted to show you is that we have categorized um, issues that God says, issues in which God addresses the heart. And you can see these in the next document. Several places in Scripture talk about having hearts that are for God. We also have a category where God actually tests and sees and knows the heart. This is really good to remember when you're reading your Bible some morning or some evening. You're in there and, and you're in Proverbs 15, 11, and you read about how God actually knows and investigates and tests your own heart and sees into it better than we see into it ourselves. It talks about the hardness of heart. You can see all those references to Exodus. Most of those are related to Pharaoh. And the pride of the heart is really, really good when you're reading your Bible and you think, oh, that describes me on certain occasions. I need to be sensitive to that. And you can go through, and there's all kinds of categories, many, many, many categories. And the message in all of this is read your Bible cover to cover. We all have our favorite sections. We all have our favorite authors in Scripture. I really love to read the book of Ephesians. I love Ephesians 1. Uh, it's one of my favorites, but that doesn't keep me from reading the rest of the Scripture because I know that God has, has given it to all of us so that we can read all of it. So what I want to just encourage you guys to keep doing is keep reading all of your Bibles because you will learn a lot about your own heart as you read uh, throughout Scripture. So maintain your faithfulness. If you're not on a reading plan, um, pray about becoming a, a part of a reading plan and getting on one. Um, if you're on a plan that's your own, you've designed it yourself, you've brewed it up yourself, and it's working, that's really good. Stay on that plan. But make sure it takes you through the whole counsel of Scripture so we expose ourselves to everything that God gave us. So that's my heart for you guys this morning. It's my heart for myself as well, that, that we all just expose ourselves to everything that God has given to us, the full counsel of His Word. So let's remember to do that. Um, if you don't have uh, a reading plan, there's a couple of suggested ones in the back in the resources section for you. Um, talk to me. I can point you to some other ones as well. Or you can make your own and make one that, that works for you. 
Um, but there's wisdom in being on a reading plan that allows you to read through Scripture. There's also wisdom in, at times, studying Scripture more deeply in a more concentrated fashion. We want guys to be doing that as well. Um, so there's a, the idea of a balance or, or a mixture there that, that's really, really helpful. Uh, but overall, we want to be guys who, more than anything else, are, are reading God's Word devotionally so that we can grow to love Him more. All right. All right, well, uh, my name is Josh Kelso. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. I came over with the church plant uh, 17, almost 18, I think, years ago now, and have been a part of the church, have gotten to grow up in the church, which has been a, a blessing. And um, I'm married. Julie, if you don't know, is my wife. We are uh, about to celebrate, at the end of May, we'll be celebrating 17 years of marriage. We have four kids, Asher, Elijah, Kyla, and Caleb. And uh, it's just a privilege to be with you men this morning and to get to look at one of the things that is uh, a love of mine, uh, which is marriage. I'm very grateful for my wife. She is a treasure. Aside from salvation, I think she's the, the greatest gift to the Lord uh, or from the Lord to me. And so to get to be with you men and to look at what God has to say about marriage and particularly God's instruction for us as men in marriage is is really exciting and really just a privilege to get to be with you. And um, why don't we start and go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll dive into our study. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your mercies. We know they're we know they're new today. We know that you will give us just what we need to be able to handle and navigate the various worries that may come to us this day in a way that is pleasing to you, and I pray that we would walk in them. And even this morning, as we look at your word now, I pray that we would have tender hearts to see your instruction clearly, and that we would not only be hearers of your word, but that we would be eager to be doers of your word, that we would humble ourselves under your instruction and recognize the benefit for us and the glory that it brings you when we submit ourselves under your guidance and care for us. Lord, I pray that that would be our supreme desire to see you glorified in everything that we do, uh, particularly in our marriages. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we all know, the goal in life uh, for the believer is to give glory and honor to Jesus Christ, uh, to see him magnified in everything that we do. And thus, as we consider marriage, our goal in marriage should be to glorify Christ to worship him, to have our life be situated and conducted in a manner and our heart's disposition be such that we are seeking to glorify God worshipfully as we live for him. And uh, the reality is, is that unbelievers can have peaceful marriages. You might be able to avoid conflict as an unbeliever. You might be able to have a long marriage as an unbeliever, but an unbeliever will not be able to glorify God in their marriage, and that should be our desire. And so as we think about our marriage, what we want to talk about primarily today is that, is conducting ourselves in our marriages in a worshipful way, in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And hopefully those other things will follow, but if all that comes from our conduct in our marriage is peace and longevity, we failed. We want God to be glorified. We want our lives to be an expression of worship to God and how we conduct ourselves. 
And, and it's important for us to recognize that marriage is a beautiful institution. God really only talks about marriage in a positive light in Scripture. And I think sometimes there's a, a temptation. I actually was speaking with a young man this week who had been instructed previously in another church uh, by another man to, to fear marriage. Um, man, I'm just afraid of marriage. You should be. And I don't think that's our, God's desire for how we would think about marriage. Marriage is a precious institution that reveals wonderful things about the Trinity and puts on display wonderful things about Christ and the church. And marriage is a wonderful thing for us who are in it. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And so I don't think we should be terrified about marriage. What I think we should do is we should fear God. And I think what we should do is we should have enough self-awareness to know the dangers that we bring into another's life when we are in that kind of proximity. The concern isn't marriage. Marriage isn't the problem. We are. We need to think rightly about that. Otherwise, there may be a temptation when we sin in our marriages to say, well, marriage is hard. No, you're a sinner. (laughs) I'm a sinner. I'm in close. I'm being unified with a sinner. And I need the grace of God. Marriage is great. Marriage is wonderful. What we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at a a number of biblical imperatives that will help us navigate our marriages in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and worshipful to the Lord. In previous lessons, I, I listened to one of Tom's. He said in previous lessons, he had 50 imperatives um, that he went through. And then I guess he dwindled it down to 30 And um, what I did was I took a lot of his material and moved things around and combined it and tried to try to package it in 11. And so um, we're going to work through 11 imperatives from Scripture that will bolster our worship of God as we seek to serve our wives. And, And what's really helpful to think about is that these imperatives, sometimes we hear instruction or commandments. Oh, great. Things I have to do. Um, well, if they're the right things to do, then that's not a burden. That's actually a blessing that God would give us guidance, that you wouldn't leave us to ourselves in our marriages. In fact, 1 John 5, 3 tells us that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You know what's burdensome? It's trying to navigate marriages independent from wisdom or guidance or instruction. And the fact that God has given us specific instruction for the kind of men that we are called to be is an evidence of God's love and kindness to us. And I think if we can cultivate that kind of attitude as we step into this, it's going to greatly impact how we receive these instructions. That these instructions aren't for God to hold us under his iron fist and to keep us from all the fun things that we want to go do in our marriages. Actually, these are, these are evidences of God's love that he would help us know how we should walk so that we might experience the fullness of joy that he desires for us in him and in our marriages. Now, uh, what if you're single? Don't space out. <laughs> these, are, these are incredibly important because the reality is, is that many of the things that God calls us to be in our marriage are actually simply what God calls us to be as men of God. And yet our wives should be the primary recipients of these things. There's actually very few that we'll look at this morning that exclude you if you're unmarried. All of these are attributes and characteristics that you should be and are called to be as a man now. 
and to whom they're expressed might look differently. And it would be uh, foolish on your part to hear these biblical imperatives and think, well, those are things that I can address later. I'll do that later when there's a woman in my life. Actually, because they're what God calls you to be now, cultivate that now so that you're the right kind of man to enter into a union with a woman and be a blessing to her and be worshipful and God-honoring. So let's look at these together. Uh, It's important to realize a, a lot of these overlap. So if you go, well, this seems redundant. Yes, it does. There's common themes. There's threads here. Primarily Christ and primarily the love of Christ that we're called to imitate in our marriages. So biblical imperative number one in your outline there is this. Love your wife. Love your wife. That's the first imperative. You might even say that's the supreme imperative. That's what God calls us to be as men, right? Lovers of others, lovers of him, lovers of each other. And yes, there is specific instruction for us to love our, our wives. So your first blank there is love, love your wife. Turn to Ephesians 5.25. So no doubt a, a familiar passage with, uh, for many of us. Starting in verse 25, I'm just going to read through 33 so we just see the entirety of of what Paul sets forth here. But he says right there at the beginning of verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? Well, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also, here's the imperative again, to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, verse 33, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The instruction is simple. The implementation of the instruction is a high charge. Love your wife. Love your wife. How? Well, by loving her in the same way as Christ loves the church. To love your wife this way, it's imperative that you understand the love of Christ. If if you're to love your wife in the same way that Christ loves the church, you have to have experienced the love of Christ. To think that you can clean up your marriage and be a God-honoring husband and yet not have your heart near to the Lord is foolish and unreasonable. And this is helpful as we consider the home discipline too. We see the pattern that we see in all of these, and that's that we really have no chance of accomplishing our goal of glorifying God and being worshipful in our marriages if we've neglected our own hearts. If we're not familiar with the love of Christ, how would we think that we can step into our homes and express well the love of Christ to our wife? It must start with the shepherding, the diligent shepherding 
of our heart. Now feel free as we go, stop, ask questions, interrupt me, raise your hand, whatever you're comfortable with. If, if something pops into your mind, feel free to, to interrupt me and otherwise I'm just going to keep going. Okay. I won't, I might take a breath in about a half hour, but uh, feel free to interrupt me. So you must love your wife. You need to know the, the love of Christ. What, what a perfect example of how you must be shepherding your heart well to serve and care for your wife in the manner that God desires. How much more will you be fortified in being able to demonstrate Christ-like love to your wife if you have renewed your mind intentionally that morning with the love of Christ? Think about this principle in general. As we're called to love one another as Christ has loved us, how much better will we be able to demonstrate love and care for each other if we have shepherded our hearts well with the love of Christ? We must look to Christ. We must see Christ's example of love, letter B in your outline under imperative one, as our standard of love, right? John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. We must follow Christ as our role model. We must set aside the focus of giving primarily for ourselves. We're to turn away from our selfishness, our control, our manipulation, our self-gratification, our self-absorption. We must die to ourselves for the benefit of our wife. And there's no conditions that are to be placed on this. We're to love our wives unconditionally in the same way that Christ loves and accepts the believer without conditions. We must not set any expectation that she has to merit our love. When I come home from work, if this is done and this is done and this is done, then I'm going to serve her and love her and cherish her and honor her. But if I walk into the house and it's messy and the kids are kind of running around and uh, she doesn't look perfect <laughs> and I don't smell anything in the oven. Oh, man. I got my work to do. I got to fix my wife now. No, I need to serve my wife unconditionally. God demonstrated his love for us in his son, Jesus, while we were helpless, godless sinners. When we were at our worst, We've heard it said, God gave us his best. There's no conditions on this love. We're to accept her unconditionally in the way that Christ accepts the believer. The imperative here is not to get your wife to love you, to get your wife to meet your expectations, to get your wife to do what you want her to do. The standard is for you to love your spouse in the way that God defines love. And there is no condition on this. There's just never an instance where her behavior or her disposition gets you out of the call to love her. You are always called to love her. And, and to love her as God defines love, not as you think you should show love to her in that moment. I think it's important to consider this even as we talk about it now. Do you initiate love in your relationship? Are, are you the defining example 
before her in your household of, of love, of unconditional love. As she reads her Bible and sees Christ, are you a tangible example before her of that kind of self-sacrificial love? Or do you hold grudges? Do you give the silent treatment? Do you seek to manipulate? Or do you lay down your life without expectation and return? Because that is what God calls us to do, to love. To love sacrificially, to love intentionally, to give selflessly regarding of her response. We're at E in your outline, if I lost you. You know you are to love her according to God's standard of love. Others don't get to dictate the love that you're to show to your spouse. A, a love test doesn't define what love is to look like. Uh, a determination of her love language is not what you are accountable to. You are accountable to the Lord, and he has said very clearly what love is and has demonstrated it perfectly in his son. You can see in your notes there, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 3 through 7, uh, we see love spelled out for us of what we must be and as we just paraphrase a bit to personalize it to what we're called to be in our marriage you, you might say it this way you must be patient with your wife you must be kind to your wife you must not be jealous or envious you must not be boastful you must not be rude do not be self-seeking do not be easily angered you must not keep a record of wrongs. You must not delight in evil. You are to bear all things. You must believe all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. That is God's standard and definition of love. What a precious gift from the Lord to give us that kind of instruction of what we must be, of what we're called to be. There's some other verses to consider, and we're going to keep going, but this theme of love for your spouse is going to come up again. We'll keep talking about it as we go through these imperatives. Imperative number two, accept your wife. Accept your wife. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. What does that mean to accept your wife? Well, it means you, you should die to self-interest and self-protection. But by dying daily to self-will and seeking God's will in the same way Christ did as a demonstration of his love and servant's heart for his wife. You accept the wife that the Lord gave you. You enter into your home primarily looking at yourself Accepting the wife that God gave you, seeking to serve her and care for her. You, you must love her, accept her as she is, rather than demanding that she change to please you. What kind of expectations do you have of your wife? Do you expect her to change to meet every desire that you have? And that's what she primarily feels is how you want her to be to you as a wife. Your number one priority is not to change your wife, but to be who God calls you to be. The, the reality is, is that we can never change our wife. You can shepherd your wife. You can serve your wife. You die to yourself for your wife. You do all of these independently from who she is or how she is treating you. 
and then you trust God to conform your wife to whom he desires her to be. We don't have that kind of control. And to think we do, and to use manipulative tactics to try to get her to be what we want is sinful and wrong. Rather, we accept her, and we love her, and we serve her. Think of 1 Peter 2.21. Go ahead and turn there. First Peter two. Starting in verse twenty one. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Here's the, here's the standard of Christ's love for us and how he conducted himself in the face of persecution for our benefit. Verse 22, Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed that's that's what christ did for us are you ready to not repay evil with evil in your home to be slandered and not primarily be concerned with defending yourself to die to your own interests and desires and defenses of yourself for the sake of serving and loving and caring, cherishing your wife. Are you ready in your marriage to keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously? Now, the reality is, is that if we feel at times persecuted in our marriages, uh, we're probably uh, delusional. <laughs> It's not one way. With Christ, it was all one way, right? Christ was only perfect, only holy. And it was a complete injustice that he was treated the way that he was, and that's how he responded. I can all but guarantee you that if you're treated poorly ever in your marriage, it's not a complete injustice. <laughs> you have sinned in your marriages. And yet the opportunity to entrust yourself to the Lord in that moment, and not feel like you've got to gather up the circumstance in your arms and hold them and not let them unravel because this isn't going well and I've got to control things right now. No, 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 no. You humble yourself under the Lord. You die to yourself. You keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously. And you love and you accept. You care. For your wife. Number three, imperative number three, your blank is lay down your life for your wife. Lay down. That's the third biblical imperative that we're looking at this morning. Lay down your life for your wife. Second Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. For but him who died and rose again on their behalf. We are called to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ. Christ has called us to love our wives, to lay down our lives for our wife, to love her sacrificially. 
You are to be willing to lay down your life for her if called to do so, which is the way Christ demonstrated love for the believers. This is helpful to consider the, the subtle ways that this can be manifested. Let me ask you to, to think about this. How does your schedule demonstrate you laying down your life for your wife? How have you situated in your, your life work-wise? There, there is a, a very abstract, um, difficult to determine an essential balance of working well and hard and diligently as God calls us to work to provide good things for our family, to make sure that their needs are met, and yet also to not be so absorbed in work that we neglect the spiritual needs of our family as well. That's not an easy thing to determine. The, your capacity, everybody's different, is going to dictate that. Your wife's needs are going to dictate that. Past decisions and things that you have bound yourself to financially are going to dictate those types of things. But we should be thinking not what work am I most fulfilled in, what work do I enjoy the most, what gets me the most money, what has the best career path for our future to accomplish these financial goals that we want to accomplish. Those shouldn't be the driving factors in how you position yourself in life. Laying down your life for the glory of Christ, for the good of your family, should be what's on the forefront of our minds as we think about employment, how much we work. Things like that. Well, what about your free time? What hobbies do you have? Do your hobbies habitually take you away from your family? Or do they draw you nearer to your family? To your wife? Hobbies that you like and your wife doesn't are not sinful. But how much you give to those types of things at the expense of your wife is revealing. Are you laying down your life for your wife? Nothing is off limits when you incorporate the word life. <laughs> this is all of who you are. And if, if you were to step back and evaluate yourself, would you be able to characterize yourself and how you've structured life in work, in family time, how you conduct yourself in the home, in hobbies, extra activities? Would you be able to characterize yourself as one who is self-sacrificial for the sake of your family, for the glory of Christ? We should all aspire to that. Number four, biblical imperative number four is love your wife as you love yourself. This could be kind of a combination of biblical imperative one and biblical imperative three. Love your wife as you love yourself. It is not hard to gratify or address the things that we want. That comes really naturally. To take care of ourselves is not difficult. And yet Matthew twenty two thirty nine tells us the... Second greatest commandment is like the first, which is loving God, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And God's instruction here isn't for us to make sure we're loving ourselves well and then love others. It's implied we do a really good job of loving ourselves. And listen, you actually need to think about others 
in the way that it comes so naturally for you to think about yourself. You're to focus on her welfare, her desires, her well-being as much as you focus on your own. When making a decision, are you skilled at drawing your wife's desires and preferences out? If a decision comes up, very seldom is it difficult to think about what I want in that decision, what's important to me. I just, I know what I like. I know what's important to me. It's a greater skill to be able to help your wife process how she feels about something. Unfortunately, it's not always easy. Sometimes the goal is helping her figure out how she feels about something. Have you ever faced that? How do you feel about this? I don't know. Well, what do you think about this? I'm not, I don't want that. Okay, I know that. <laughs> okay, I know, you, I know what you don't want. Let's keep digging. What do you want? What about how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? It might be exhausting to work through that process. But what an opportunity to love your wife, to serve her, to help her, and to glorify God in how you do it. We don't have to work hard to love, love ourselves. We should cultivate such a disposition to where our minds are trained to think of serving our wife first. That should be our aim. Instead of being confronted with a decision and letting our minds just run with all the, the ways that this decision impacts us and, and all the things that we want and desire in this, we need to train our hearts. We need to take our thoughts captive and and move ourselves forward in a way that our minds are unleashed on what would be a blessing to our wife. What would be a blessing to my wife? How can I exert myself in a way that I'm thinking about her as much as I think about myself? Imagine a, a hypothetical scenario. I doubt any of you have ever experienced something like this. Let's just say we're in a different dimension. You work 12 hours. You come home from work. You're hungry. You're exhausted. You eat dinner. Okay, hypothetical. Dinner's over. You just want to sit and relax. You have been working all day. So you go over to the couch, flip on the TV, the kitchen's a mess. Oh, the kids will take care of it. My wife will take care of it. Oh, it's bedtime. Hey, I've had a really long day. Can you put the kids down tonight? I did this, this, and this. Hypothetical, I know. We've never had a temptation to think that or, or feel that way. Who are you thinking about most in those moments? Ourselves. How much you do the previous 14 hours of that day doesn't give you an out to think about yourself most when you actually are stepping into when you should be thinking about yourself least. Your home, your care for your wife. Bedtime for the kids. What kind of involvement from me would be a blessing to my wife right now as the kitchen needs to be cleaned? Whoa, 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 whoa Josh. We've got roles. We've got roles. I do this. I do this. I do this. She does this. Great. I'm glad you've defined those things. Now you know the opportunities where you can specifically step in and sacrificially serve your wife well. 
I, uh, a, a good friend of mine, Kyle Frazee, you guys know him, he, he's shared a couple different times um, during small group and, and things like that, how God's word had been in, impacting his heart. And um, he's talking about the parable of the servants and how they keep the vineyard while the master is gone. And um, if they only take care of the vineyard perfectly um, and the master comes back, all they've done is what was expected of them. And listen, if, if you provide for your family and you care for your heart and you, you, are, you share the gospel at work and you do all these wonderful things and you get home, all you've done up to that point is what's expected of you. It doesn't let you off the hook from continuing to be what God has called you to be. And we're called to be the chief servants of our home. That's what true leadership is. That's who Christ is and what he demonstrated in his love for us and laying down his life for us. He didn't go, hey, listen, I've walked 33 years on this earth perfectly. You really expect me to die at this point? No. No. Thankfully, he did not do that. And it's important to understand as we consider our wives' needs above our own is that your wife is not an obstacle to your agenda. Considering her needs above your own is not an obstacle to what really needs to get done. She is actually to be your agenda. Serving her this way is what we're called to be and do. So when your life is busy, when work is slammed, do you work to make your family feel it the least? Or do you conduct yourself where your family feels it the most? This is something, if, if you were to say, what's an area in your marriage where you've been working most intentionally and really trying to grow in the most over the last year? This is it. Okay, This, this is where I've just really struggled. And by God's grace, I'm experiencing victory. And, and Julie is just incredibly gracious and so patient. But, but what would happen is when my schedule would get slammed, my responses would get shorter. I'm not a yeller. <laughs> um, I, I don't scream at my wife. I don't tell her to get out of the room. I got work to do or anything like that. That's not where I struggle. My, my sin is, is uh, more deceptive than that. It's subtle manipulation of being quick. Do we really need to talk about this right now? Is this something we could talk about later? I, I'm just, I've got a lot going on. Or a quick phone call. My, my speed increases because I want her to understand how much I've got going on right now. And is this, is this, is this conversation really necessary? Um, uh, that's sinful. That's wrong. By God's grace, I see it. I've repented and I'm continuing to repent in that. Um, but man, what, a, what, what just a, a marriage fail. <laughs> Uh, to conduct ourselves that way, to, to where she would think that other things are more important than her, to where, to where I would try to impose whatever sinful anxiety that I'm feeling in that moment about what I have to get done, that I would try to push that off on her, have her feel that too, so that she would serve me better. Backwards thinking, not what God calls us to do. We're to love our wife as we love ourselves. To think about her needs, her desires, her benefit. Number five, consider, consider is your blank, your wife as more important than yourself. These are overlapping big time, right? There's nuances here. We're, we're really working on a circle and we're overlapping this circle and just expanding it. But all of these are connected in, in really sweet and helpful ways. Consider your wife, your wife 
as more important than yourself. Philippians 2, 4. You're to protect her from hurt and harm more than you try to protect yourself. This comes back to when your schedule is full, does your wife feel it the most? Or do you conduct yourself in a way to where you feel it the most? I'll give up sleep. I'll give up hobbies. I'll give up free time. I'll give up all of these other things that I like so that I can conduct myself in a normal pattern of life of what's a blessing to my wife in this season. Sometimes you can only do that so much, right? If you've got a season where work expectations are, you know, out of the, out of the ballpark, uh, you might have to work some 16-hour days. But listen, every moment that you have with your wife, you die to yourself so that she gets your best when you are there. You're going to treat your wife as you desire to be treated. Matthew 7, 12. Do you give your wife your best? Or do you walk into the home eager to serve or with all sorts of expectations of what your wife should do and be? Think about this. Uh, oftentimes our, our, our mindset is, man, I've exhausted myself throughout the day. And my home is a place of refuge for me. Listen, your home should be a place of refuge for you, but not because you don't have to do anything. Your home should be a place of refuge because it's characterized by service and love and obedience to Christ. Rest doesn't come from distancing ourselves from Christ's instruction. Read Psalm 119. Rest comes from heeding Christ's instruction. The lie is that if I distance myself and veg, I'll be better off than if I exert myself and give. And we know it's more blessed to give than to receive, that that's not true, that we would find more relief in self-focus than self-giving. Think about it this way. The best athletes on the earth are highlighted not for what they do the first six minutes of the game. They play the whole game exhausting themselves with very little breaks here and there. And it's the last two minutes of the game where the all-stars really rise above the rest. And playing the whole game isn't an excuse for dribbling it off your foot in the last five seconds when you're down by a point. God-honoring husbands can't shrink back and disappear at the end of the day. That's when they need to rise to the top in their service and care for their families. Any questions so far? I'm flying. Okay. All right. I just feel like a failure. So yes, yes. Everybody adequately convicted. Okay, good. Hey, if we don't see our sin, we can't repent of our sin. It's better to see it and be able to repent. We don't need to. We don't need to. Yeah. No. All right. Not going to do it. It is great because mm. it just calls you to put your heart in the sacrificial mode that it should be. Yeah. And we're so deceitful and so selfish so automatically. Yeah. Thank you for reminding us. Mm. Thanks, Nick. You know what's really sweet is that um, these, are, these are overwhelmingly above anything that we're capable of. And yet we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We don't have to depend on ourselves for these things. We look to Christ. And, and yet again, all the more, if you're feeling, oh, what a great opportunity to humble yourself, seek repentance where necessary, 
and fix your heart on the love of Christ. There should be two things that happen here. We see our inadequacies and we see the majesty of Christ. He only ever has always loved perfectly. How great is Christ? Yes, it should be convicting. It should be overwhelming in a sense. Um, And yet it also should be overwhelming the majesty and glory of Christ. That he would love us this way only ever perfectly. All right. I think we're on six. Is that right? Imitate. Imitate Christ in your love for your wife. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Your service of your wife is an outflow and an evidence of your love. When dinner is over, is everyone working to clean but you? Need to lead the charge in selfless service, not exert leadership that excludes you from service in the home. Okay, you very well may serve more than anybody else in your home. Your kids may not see it. If you're at work 12 hours a day, I'm serving my family. They're kids. They don't get their minds around that. Do you exemplify service in your home in tangible ways that they believe dad is a servant? Or are you training up little ones who go, dad dad does something all day, and then he comes home, and he expects us to do everything, and he just barks commands at us? Or your wife? Or, Or whatever. Biblical leadership is evidenced in your service of your wife and family and others. Your attitude is commanded to be the same as Christ who humbled himself by assuming the role of a slave. Nobody started higher and descended lower than Christ. And we're called to imitate him in our attitude. There's just no service that should be off limits in our home. Um, No diaper is too filled. (laughs) Uh, No sickness is too gross. We should be chief servants in our home. True humility is evidenced in putting the interests and welfare of your wife and family before your own and by giving of yourself regardless of the inconveniences or the difficulties you face. Okay, two two things of how, how we should think about this. One, there really shouldn't be anything off limits of what we're willing to do service-wise in our, in our home. There's nothing that we should think, that's the wife's job, so I'm not going to do it. We should just be willing to help and serve in every way. That doesn't mean we do everything, right? But when having opportunities, we should be willing to step in and serve where help is needed in any circumstance. Uh, here, here's an example. When our kids were younger, okay, Um, We had a really unique situation where sometimes our kids might throw fits in stores. Um, I know, I know they still let me be an elder here by God's grace. Um, But but sometimes that would happen. And there were multiple times where I told my wife, leave the basket, pick up the child, drive home, discipline the child, text me a list of what we need from the grocery store. I'll pick it up on my way home. And she's going, we're hosting tonight, small group. The fridge is empty. We have no food. Our oldest son is out of deodorant, and everybody knows it. And all all these things. I'm going, number one priority, shepherd our child. And I'll I'll go to the grocery store. 
That's easy. The need right now is, is for our child to be shepherded. We can figure out all those other things. And, and, and by God's grace, I had that modeled before me and, and instructed to me. And I would just say, that's the kind of heart disposition we should have in freeing up our wives to handle the needs of the moment and being willing to absorb things that might usually be her responsibilities to help her do what God calls her to do in those moments best. Second thing, some people can't look at blood without passing out. Um, (laughs) So do the other things so that your wife can do the things that you might physically not be able to do. If you can't look at vomit without vomiting, um, you know, go overboard on changing diapers and (laughs) find other ways to to serve and and be a blessing. That was the second part of that whole spiel. All right, imperative number seven, lead your wife. Lead your wife. This is probably one of the things that, if, if you told our culture, husbands need to love their wives, They need to die to themselves. Nobody would have a problem with that in in concept. The practical implementation of that, there's huge problems with. They can't understand the love of Christ. They don't understand the love of Christ. They won't understand what that looks like practically. But lead your wife. This is where we would get into some sticky ground simply stating that. And yet that's God's design and that's God's instruction. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.3. God, in a, in a really wonderful way, spells out the creative order of how he set things forth. First Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Christ has authority of man, over man. The man is the head of a woman. And he's talking about a marriage relationship there. The man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, a side note, just to draw attention to the glory and majesty and greatness of Christ. Um, who's the head of the man? Christ. Who does the man look to, to know how to lead well? Christ. Okay. Um, who's the head of Christ? Who does the woman look to, to know how to submit well? Christ. Christ is submitting to the Father. Christ is to be the center of attention for both of us to be exemplified perfectly, both humble leadership and joyful submission. He died and exercised his self-giving love for us, and he humbly submitted himself to the Father's will. Christ is truly, truly wonderful. We're called to lead our wife. We are the head of our wife, the head of the woman, head of the household. You're to lead your wife because this is the position already given to you by God. I think it's important to consider these things when we think about what happens in our home. How is the tone set spiritually? Does your wife beg you to pray with the family? I would love it so much if we could just do some family Bible studies. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm just not sure where to start. Can we maybe read our Bible together as a family? I've had a really busy day. It's getting late. Does she set the tone? Does she beg you? Or are you leading it? Are you leading the charge? Do you read scripture together? Is there a pattern of family devotions? Who disciplines your children when you're home, if you have children in the home? 
<coughs> are you leading? Are you setting the tone spiritually in your home? You lead your wife as Christ leads his church by being a decision maker to whom she submits. You lead by seeking wisdom and decision making through the scriptures, prayer, and wise counsel, and must consider all other biblical imperatives in your decision making. It's important to understand that as the head of the household, we have to take into account all of those other biblical imperatives as we exert this leadership. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves in very sinful territory, wanting to be dictators of our home, seeking our own desires and our own needs, and all of a sudden our leadership of our home is so that our family falls in line with what our agenda is. And then when they interrupt that, then we yell to manipulate, to get them to do what we want, or we take things away, and, and all of a sudden it becomes more about us getting what we want as opposed to us making decisions for the benefit of serving the family. We've talked a lot about self-sacrifice of serving your wife's desires and needs above your own. Spiritual leadership here is dying to yourself for the sake of another. And what this doesn't mean is that you're passive. As we've talked so much already about dying to your own desires to serve your, your wife, that doesn't exclude or compete with the headship. And headship doesn't compete with dying to yourself in your service of your wife. To be a self-sacrificer in your home doesn't mean you are passive and your wife starts to lead everything. This doesn't mean that you let your wife run whatever way she desires with it, without thought of her spiritual well-being. If your wife wants what is displeasing to the Lord, you need to lead her and care for her and instruct her. We're the head of our household, but we're called to be the chief servant of our household. And those things go together beautifully. When we're intentionally near to our wife, asking good questions, understanding struggles, understanding desires, we're able to give of ourselves for her benefit and to push the family forward in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. What about admonishing your wife? Where does that fit into these things? Scripture is to be our authority, not our preferences, our, our, our authority. Your wife should experience your praises in an, in an overwhelming tone, as the overwhelming tone of your interaction, not your rebuke. Your wife should feel your love expressed through thankfulness. Far more than your displeasure. And you should only express displeasure as God calls things displeasure. Not all of your expectations of what you want her to be outside of God's expectations. And your, so your rebuke should be founded in scripture and done with much grace. And the chief recipient of your expression of love covering sins should be your wife. Every, 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 every sin that you can cover and love against you by your wife, you should. Every sin that is done against you, you should cover and love. And at the same time, you should advocate for her holiness. Dave. Well, I was going to ask you, um, 
about the First Corinthians verse, bears all things. Is that kind of an explanation? I was pondering, what does that mean to bear all things? Yep. Um, and covering and covering love. Said about covering. Yep. I, I think I think they're very closely related. If if you're to bear all things in your love of your wife. Um, anything that she were to hurl at you specifically, or even the consequences of family decisions that are difficult, the more that you can take the load of those things for the benefit of another, whatever you can do to take the burden to relieve it from the other, you should be willing to do. And so it's it's definitely related. Um, I, I think the bear all things is probably a little bit more broader than love covering sin only. I think there might be things, there might be times where you bear something um, that goes against a preference or is just a consequence of actions, um, not necessarily sin-related, but it would definitely incorporate sin-related things as well. Like the shopping example? Yep. Yeah, I'd be willing to, to, to take that on. Negative implications of different things that might happen. So there's this tension, right? I want to serve my wife. I want to promote her godliness. And I also don't want to rebuke her every time she sins to where she feels like she has to walk on eggshells around me or else I'm going to unleash on her my great biblical wisdom and knowledge and insight about what God calls her to be. <laughs> uh, it all comes back to just the simple instruction that's hard to implement, log and spec, um, bear each other's burdens, keeping careful watch on yourself that you don't fall into sin likewise. But listen, the overwhelming feeling that our wives should get to us is how they're a precious gift from the Lord to us, that they are a good thing from the Lord to us. God tells husbands, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. What a, what a blessing. What a blessing. Does she feel that as the overwhelming disposition that you have towards her, one of thankfulness and praise versus disappointment or condemnation? And then in everything that we might even possibly consider bringing to our wife, we need to be quick to look to ourselves first and making sure that we're exemplifying godly nature as well. Do you conduct yourself in a way that should you go to her concerned about sin, she knows that you are for her? Don't let the day-by-day way that you conduct yourself and how you occupy your time and your desires Allow her to be convinced of anything else but that you are for her and that you love her. And then as Tom has said previously, realize that no decision is a decision when you are part of the household. Um, You ever been trying to figure out where to go out for dinner? You're exhausted and starving. You don't care. You just want food. And you know what? She's having a hard time deciding what she wants to eat. And all of a sudden, the discussion gets into this like, well, what do you want? I don't know. What do you want? Would you just make a decision? Would you just make a decision? If you're not making a decision, that's a decision. And even in that moment of extreme hunger and exhaustion, if it's a blessing for your wife to just choose a restaurant, do that. Do that. And maybe know enough about her in advance to know that she doesn't like Chinese food, so you don't pick Chinese food. (laughs) I don't care. Let's go get Chinese. I hate Chinese food. You told me to choose. <laughs> know your wife well enough to know those things. Mexican food. Mexican, yeah, off limit. No. Oh, oh, oh. When in doubt. When in doubt. <laughs> okay, there you go. When in doubt, go to In and Out. That's uh, <laughs> that's our our motto. 
All right, uh, our time is quickly. I told Scott, hey, I can stay within the time. <laughs> I got a minute. All right. Oh, boy. Okay, imperative number eight. Provide and protect your family. Provide and protect your family. Be diligent. Work hard. Adjust your lifestyle and income to the point to where you can do all things well within your provision, protection, care for your family. Learn to be content. Exemplify contentment. When you're driving down the road, does your wife hear you talk about all the cars going by that you wish you had? (laughs) Cultivate contentment. Does your wife hear you talk about your wage with a content attitude? The expectations your boss has for you, do you exemplify contentment in that? Or is she the one that you vent to? Consider how that might serve her heart. Protect your family by not being involved in excessive behaviors. Teach, exhibit, be a good role model. Be intentional about thinking about what you're bringing into your home, TV, entertainment, friends, different things like that. Be an involved man. Participate in those things. Work together with your spouse in those things. Guard your family from wrong doctrine and teaching. All of us will not always be at Grace Bible Church. Grace Bible Church may not always be what it is. And you need to have your antennas up to understand what God's word says so that you can guard and protect your family spiritually. Number nine, understand God's design for intimacy in the marriage. Understand. Understand God's design for intimacy is an act of giving to your wife rather than receiving. Guard, 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 guard your minds. Don't let filth into your heart. God's design for intimacy in marriage is so great and so precious and so beautiful. How dare us? Bring carnal things into our homes, into our marriages, into our minds, into our expectations. Our bodies are not our own. We are to be self-givers. And then number 10, cast, cast your burdens on the Lord. It's hard. Not every marriage is easy. Not every person is perfect. Not every situation is the same, and yet God is faithful. He can sustain you. He he can. And he will, for the believer, sustain you to be the leader in your home. And you're called to be the source of strength and stability for your home in times of trouble. You need to care for your heart in such a way that when a job is lost, you're exemplifying trust in the Lord before your family. And when a house is foreclosed upon, you're exemplifying trust in the Lord for your family. And when someone near gets sick, you're exemplifying or dies. You're exemplifying trust in the Lord before your family. You are exemplary in casting your burdens on the Lord. Why? So that you can comfort others in the Lord with the comfort that you've been shown. So that you can remain temperate and calm, trusting God's sufficient grace. So that what you've been faithful to proclaim in your home about the trustworthy of, trustworthiness of God, you're now exemplifying in the home. 
so that you can role model thankfulness and contentment in all things. So that you can continually point your wife to the dependency upon God so that you can bear her burdens well as she may be struggling with life's various difficulties. Man, your wife is never an obstacle to what God would want your life want in your life and is always an opportunity to please the Lord in selfless care. And then lastly, live with your wife in an understanding way. Be sensitive to her, show interest in her, be compassionate and kind and considerate. And again, all of these things are independent from where she's at spiritually and how she's doing. Seek to help her, encourage her, be willing to accept admonishment to her, confess your sin to her, forgive her sin. Make it a habit of seeking forgiveness, be a good listener, encourage her daily, care for her, tell her you love her, cherish her as the precious vessel that she is. Let's pray. God, thank you for these instructions. They are for our good, and when we do them well, they are for your glory. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be overwhelmed by your call to marriage, but that we would be impressed by the magnitude of your grace, that you would allow uh, people like us to um, be a part of an institution in a manner that can glorify you. Give us your strength. Give us contentment. Give us joy and obedience. Give us courage to adjust and transition and change the things that we must and um, help us to be encouraged by the areas of your grace that are present. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.